the hardest thing is making shit that people actually care about. And I think as marketers, sometimes we, we forget that, right? Hey, it's Dan Maga here. I'm a tech stack nerd and the CEO of the leading tech stack agency, Maga.io. Each week, I speak to executives to find out the stack they're using to drive revenue and make their goals a reality. This week, I've got Andrew Davies, the chief marketing officer at Paddle. Paddle provides payment infrastructure for SaaS companies. The company got started back in 2012, and wow, that is 10 years ago. Their ninth year, 2021, marked a crazy year for Paddle. They reached a major milestone of $1 billion in total revenue process through their platform and also hit more than 3,000 customers globally. It's also the year that they brought Andrew Davies on to help drive growth. And Andrew is all about being smart, creative, and listening to his team. In every role I've had, I've always made sure there's someone there that I hire in or train up from inside the team, and then I trust them. If you either hire someone and don't trust them, or you try and be the expert alongside your day job, and it ends up becoming pretty divisive in terms of your time focus. Andrew is a super valuable asset at Paddle, and today he's going to share about his stack, his strategies, and his leadership style that helps his team pick the right tools and stay motivated to succeed. Let's hear what he's got to say. My name is Andrew Davies. I serve Paddle as Chief Marketing Officer, live in the southwest of the UK, and have been with Paddle since the beginning of January this year. So you're pretty new uh, to Paddle. How's the first couple of months been going for you? Yeah, it's been fantastic. Um, I actually was able to peek under the hood um, for a bunch of months uh, last year. There was a few people I knew in the business and I was able to kind of help them out informally. And so knew the team and knew some of their stack and knew what their aspirations were. And so there's been no surprises since I joined formally. So you're new at Paddle. You've been there a few months. Help us understand what does Paddle do though, right? Like, is it is it going to get me somewhere? I mean, I feel like I have a, a ship and I'm going to paddle somewhere. So is there some a pun on the name too? Oh, I guess it does get you there. The business is super interesting. And I've got to be honest, you know, I knew the two founders because they actually, one of their, their VCs was the VC that invested in our business, Idio. And so I knew them in the, in the London community and I bumped up against Paddle, but I didn't really know what it did. And one of our journeys over the last you know, year or so is tightening that proposition. The way I explain it is that if you're launching a software business, a SaaS business, now you want to focus on the product and you want to focus on the customer. Everything else is really a distraction. Uh, and yet the challenge is that if you're adopting product-led growth, so you've got a checkout on your site maybe and free demos, and then you're getting people to sign up to some kind of plan, that approach needs you to sell in as many places as possible in order to get the volume because you're probably charging you know, 10, 50, 100 pounds a month, whatever it might be. And the complexity of that stack really grows exponentially over the course of those first few years. And so you end up putting in place some basic payment processor, but then suddenly you're selling in different markets, you need different currencies to manage, you've got to work out you know, what payment acceptance methods to use, you've got subscription management to think about, then you've got tax calculations and fraud prevention. And what happens is you build this spaghetti stack that starts off super easy with one payment processor, Stripe or similar, and soon you've got four or five vendors, a bunch of engineering time and a bunch of financial time just to make sure this thing works and you're taking payments you know, in a compliant way. And Paddle just replaces all of that. So all of that, it bundles together one simple fee and you can sell anywhere in the world completely tax compliantly, completely without fraud issues. And because it's going through the Paddle platform, all of those points of payment acceptance, et cetera, are optimized at a global scale. And so we really want to take all of that headache away from software execs and software founders. 
So the company is obviously focused on growth, right? Bringing in a new CMO means that they're trying to go somewhere. I mean, what are the main KPIs or goals that you're tracking to, uh, that you're monitoring uh, to make sure the business is, is hitting its goals? The North Star of the business is gross transaction volume. So the amount of payments volume that we are monetizing that's going through our platform. And that's comprised of two things, as in most businesses, it's the growth of our base, the software companies we're already serving and how they're growing. And then it's also the new business that we're bringing into the platform and how fast we can bring that in. In terms of the seat that I'm sitting in, I'm looking at how can we create the opportunities to make that happen, so the pipeline. Um, and then the bit before that will be the what we call quality meetings complete, so the step before pipelines or opportunities. And then, obviously, as a CMO, I'm always working on those two timeframes. It's in-quarter, next-quarter demand. But it's also how are we building the position and the message for the demand that we want to capture in two years. And I guess one other thing that's a goal for me personally and for the marketing function is also to do work that we can genuinely be proud of. Lots of B2B marketing is just so banal. And so beyond all of those numbers, or as well as all of those numbers, to complete our aspirations and to get to where we want this business to go, it's also about doing it the right way and being really willing to invest in things that aren't going to pay dividends, perhaps on next week's lead gen target, but are things that we're really proud of and things that help the wider software community grow better, faster, safer. Because if we do that and we're putting back into the community like that, I think it has outsized results in the end. There's a guy that I do some work with from time to time that's an SEO, and his whole focus is helping brands kind of like yourself turn their product data into SEO uh, ways to grow the business and create that as a flywheel. So I think you're, you're spot on with that strategy. On that front, an, an example that you can go on our website right now that we're now completely redeveloping is we, we call it the tax agony index. So as part of our core proposition, we have to know the tax rates and all of the complexities of paying sales tax in every territory, in every jurisdiction. And so we built this tax agony index that tells you how painful it is in different regions and will you go to jail and what the fines will be like. Now, that's a great opportunity for programmatic SEO because we've got all of the data behind every one of those jurisdictions and we're publishing it in an okay way, but we could be much more effective about how we're building that data set into pages of content for people to read and understand. I'm going to Google tax agony after this because I so want to see this because this is definitely extremely valuable, especially to somebody like myself uh, and as well as other people. I mean, I own a SaaS company. I own a service-based business and stuff like that. So I think that's super awesome. Now, going back to, you know, you talked about pipeline generation is a really big one. Quality meetings completed, right? So like making sure that you have a successful meeting, I think it's a great way to align with marketing and sales. What are the projects that you're running now that's helping you hit those goals? One of the things we've noticed as we are increasingly serving more upmarket B2B software companies is that our sales process and our the way we demonstrate value has got to improve. So something that's been a real big change that we've already started to see the benefits on is how we conduct business value assessments, ROI calculations, how we enable our, our sales team, how we enable our marketing team to understand the cost of staying the same and the benefits of going to a new approach like Paddle. So that's something that uh, is a very clear project within the business. And that shows us that by the time you get to a, about 20 million of ARR, most product-led growth software businesses, this stack, they're probably spending 8, 9, maybe 10% of their revenue on that stack, that spaghetti stack and all the people that are involved in it. So when we tell people we take 5% of your ARR, it sounds incredibly expensive until they actually realize what they're currently spending, but they have no visibility 
aside from all of the risk and everything, they have no visibility on calculating what that proportion is. So yeah, the business value assessments is one thing that we're making big progress on, and how can we make that transparent so it becomes a tool, so people can plug their own numbers in, and so people can understand and wrestle with that themselves rather than it being us selling to them. I mentioned about standing up a customer marketing function. That's absolutely an initiative here on how we can build that community of interest, uh, how we can help our software sellers learn from each other, how they could sell to each other more effectively, how we can you know, cross-pollinate between that base. And then there's a, uh, on the more longer-term initiatives, there are some really interesting bets we're making on media and content. I believe there's, we've, we've got this fantastic data set for benchmarking and for tools, but also you know, we've got access to an amazing array of stories of entrepreneurs, particularly bootstrapped entrepreneurs who are building fantastic businesses in random parts of the world and helping them tell those stories well to, for the benefit of the market is something I'm really interested in. I'm engaged in a bunch of fun projects right now. In fact, you know, before this podcast is probably live, we'll have uh, uh, launched the trailer to our new documentary film um, where we've been behind the scenes in our business and another business for the last three months, digging into some of the background behind how you build a software business and publishing that for the benefit of the community. That's awesome. I love it. Docu- how long is the documentary going to be? Like, Is it like a 30-minute thing? or? Yeah, current cut will probably be 25, 30 minutes. This is such a cool thing that Andrew is doing. So I wanted to take a minute to highlight the value of creativity. I know how mundane things can get when you're staring at a screen and we're just inputting data into fields. And that's why it's really awesome when marketing teams get creative and do something cool. A super fun example of this is back in 2018 when Typeform made an interactive movie to market their new product, Video Ask. Now, if you're not familiar with Video Ask, it's a tool that allows your customers to interact with you and your team via pre-recorded videos. The platform works in a lot of creative ways, and in its simplest form, you could have it serve as your basic FAQ or even get to know the team section on your website. But as you get more into it, there's a lot more you can do. For an example, using conditional logic in the platform, you can create user flows that take the consumer to a specific video based upon their needs. That's something Typeform wanted to advertise, so they got creative. Using Video Ask, Typeform created an interactive movie. Think like Netflix Bandersnatch, or if you haven't seen those, think of the Choose Your Own Adventure books, but in video form. Here's an example of how it worked. You would start out and you would get a video like this. Hey, uh, sorry to bother you. I'm the neighbor across the hall and I've left my keys in the house. And it would be followed by a question. And in that case, the question would be, what would you do? And the user could then click on what they would do and it would then take them to the next video based on that answer. In some cases, you can also have a video reply back to whatever video you just saw compared to choosing the conditional logic. The campaign, though, was incredible, and it was a lot of fun for them and the audience they were introducing to the product as well. Campaigns like this aren't just cool for marketers. They also create a unique and memorable experience for the consumers. But at the same time, the response from these big ideas is often too difficult to predict. And Andrew had some interesting thoughts on that, so let's get back to him. 
when I came on board at Paddle, I, I reached out to a few different people, some that I knew and some that I didn't, to get their advice on, on some of the aspirations we had as a business and how I could think about going to achieve them. And one of the people I spoke to was Mark over at, at MailChimp, who runs brand and content there. And they've made some massive bets into their brand play and their content play, sponsoring music festivals, massive you know music podcasts with huge download audiences, feature films. And talking that whole thing through, I asked him, what was the hardest thing in this whole mix of building this media and content proposition? And what he said really stuck to me. He said that, Andrew, the hardest thing is making shit that people actually care about. And I think as marketers, sometimes we we forget that, right? We can be stuck in an ROI calculator and a white paper, but actually it moves the needle for our customers and our prospects if we're making stuff that they actually care about and that actually moves the needle for them in their day job or actually, you know, it's something they want to wake up and watch on a Saturday morning. So we're, we're trying to set that bar really high. No, I love it. You know, people don't buy things because it logically makes sense in most cases. They buy it because of their emotions and their affinity with your brand. So I think you're, you're doing the right thing. And I, I see most marketers get lost in the data and forget that there's a human on the other side that has emotions. So I, I love the fact that you're doing this. Now, to switch gears, you know, like talk a little bit about the stack. So you're doing a lot of really cool stuff from customer marketing to a documentary. You know, you talked about how you're going to show the data on the different currencies. You're doing the tax agony index, which I think honestly is like the best. I love the fact that you tax agony. What are the big parts of your stack that are enabling you to do all of these things and process the leads, things like that? So if we just start at the top of the funnel, if you like, uh, and think about where we get that data from in the first place. So yeah, we, we use Salesforce and HubSpot. Salesforce is our, our core CRM. HubSpot's used in the marketing function. A whole bunch of tools that you pointed to earlier when we were looking at your, your tool to expose what, what logos we have within our stack. So Outreach and Drift and Gong and Wistia, Livestorm, ReachDesk, Metadata would all be collecting data from our accounts and prospects. Then we use you know, data tools like Clearbit and Cognizant, as well as obviously product event data, et cetera. So that's kind of where a lot of that initial data is coming from. And then with marketing automation, we're using the event-based signups and doing some short nurture pathways. Nurture is not something we're particularly mature at at the moment. Rebecca on our on our demand gen team is doing a great job of building that out. But yeah, we've, we've got a lot more to do there around closed lost follow-up and closed one onboarding, et cetera, within, within Nurture. And we have a, a central RevOps function. And so we don't sit with MarkOps and, and sales with SalesOps. We have a central rev revenue operations function that meet regularly with each one of the different commercial teams and manage that stack themselves. So you don't have sales ops, you don't have MarkOps, right? In a lot of organizations, we still see RevOps, but there's a MarkOps person, a sales ops person. Any reason to, to have the strategy of just it all be RevOps? Couple, couple of thoughts. Uh, and I've been in organizations mostly that haven't had that central function. And I see costs and benefits both ways. I think the best way of getting full sales and marketing alignment is to work off the same data set and to have someone that isn't sales and marketing marking your homework. You know, if it's marketing ops that's on marketing side saying how awesome we are with our 400 people on the last webinar, and then you've got sales ops who are telling sales how awesome they are because they've closed this deal and that deal and sourced this revenue and that revenue. I've been in organizations before where that just ends up into an argument every week or every quarter. And so I really like the fact that we've got an external third party, if you like, a, a RevOps team um, that is marking both of our homework. But, you know, th there are also some challenges there because the volume of stuff that's coming into that central function from product as well as from from, you know, customer success, sales, and marketing is huge. And so it only really works if you really resource that central function heavily. 
Mm. No, I, I would totally agree. You need a lot of resources there. Um, going back to ReachDesk, you know, so you're using ReachDesk for direct mail. Tell me a little bit more about, you know, tech companies are starting to get back to direct mail, which I, I absolutely love. I use direct mail still. Like, tell me, what, was, what spawned this? How are you using it? When I was at IDEO, we were a, probably a 50-person startup at that point, a pretty mature ABM outbound type process selling into a small set of enterprise accounts. And direct mail was one of our tactics that just overperformed time and time again. I remember one of my sends, we converted from people who received that, 25% of them to a meeting. And these were extremely senior financial services executives. And so I believe in it. And uh, I, I believe that multi basically, I believe multi-channel works, right? You've got to invest in all of these different ways of engaging and talking with your audience. And so it was just one of the channels at Paddle that wasn't really being used or hadn't been tried when I came on board. And so, yeah, we put ReachDesk in place to enable us to do that across multiple territories. And so we've got a bunch of swag in there. We've got, um, you know, they have some a lot of standard kind of gift packages we put in there, vouchers we put in there. And so, you know, BDRs are enabled with a budget every month to use as our sales reps. We'll be rolling it out to customer support and our social team as well. I think that's super, super awesome. What, what is all the, is this swag all branded paddle swag? Like anything really cool? Yeah, I mean, obviously there's some very cool, very cool fleeces like the one I'm wearing right now. I know you'd love one of these, Dan. I'll make sure we get one over to you. Um, so, so some of it's cool. Some of it's pretty, pretty standard. We're experimenting with some more fun stuff there. And we've, you know, Dan, we've had some mistakes on this front too. One of the first things that uh, did, happened under my watch when I came on board was we, we, we tried a, an outbound tax letter, tax fine letter. So we, we chose a set of accounts and we mocked up a tax fine where it said, you know, you've been fined so much money for selling in a territory where you didn't have permission or you didn't register with the authorities, etc. And it was really fake. It was obviously fake, Dan. It, it had a, a third of it was the tax fine letter and then a fake rip across it. And then don't worry, with Paddle, you'd never get one of these. These is, We take the liability for you. Someone went on Twitter and said that They'd read the first bit and thought it was a real tax fine and it completely thrown them in a loop and they were incredibly angry. And so it didn't land very well with, with one or two people, but it landed well with others. So uh, I'm always up for trying things like that, and but very much took the feedback on board that that wasn't totally correct. Yeah, no, I think we've all made those mistakes where we have crossed the line a little bit. I love that you're using direct mail. You know, I have to shamelessly plug Sendoso as well because they are a sponsor of mine. Uh, they actually sponsor my book. Uh, Please shipping. plug them. So uh, I have to just throw <laughs> Sendoso out there as well because they uh, do have me as an ambassador. So I'm very grateful for that. You know, I'm very, very interested, you know, so naturally you have all these tools. You had mentioned RevOps, right? So like RevOps, of course, helps with the choosing of a lot of the tools. But I don't hear like when I think about the tools that you have, Salesforce, HubSpot, even Outreach, Gong, Metadata, things like that. None of these are usually outside of Salesforce, right? Like none of these are massive tools that RevOps owns. So it sounds like a lot of these are in your court uh, and things that you, you have most control over. When you think about your team and what they are using and what they're most excited to use, like are there, is there any tool that everybody's like, oh, I love this thing? Because nobody He's like, I'm excited to use Salesforce, but like I get pumped up to use Gong. I think Gong is amazing. So is there anything like that for your team? Well, not on the same mark. I'm, I've really enjoyed using winter.com. Winter, you know, user testing uh, within the tech space. Right now, we're doing a whole bunch of homepage testing. 30, 40 CFOs have just looked at our homepage and given us really detailed responses, and we're changing it based on what they've said. So I love that type of call and response, the ability to get instant feedback, whether in data or whether in actually you know, written you know, feedback about what's working and not. And from the Optimizely background, you know, we, we built a really experimentation-driven function there. And I really want to make sure we do the same here, where we're, we're testing and learning the whole time. 
Yeah, and uh, in uh, discretion, I am an investor in Winter. So can you tell everybody what Winter does while we have you here? <laughs> I'm glad you're an investor. You're going to be a rich man, Dan. I, no, seriously, uh, tools like that, you know, if you roll back two years ago, finding a panel to give you feedback on something within the tech space was really expensive because all the main providers, they might be good for consumer products. They might be good for more general awareness uh, in terms of feedback on general consumer products or general business products. But trying to find a panel of people within the tech space to feedback on something pretty geeky was really hard. It was either extremely expensive or you did it yourself with Facebook ads and LinkedIn ads and trying to build your panel yourself. So for me, what Winter does is productizes that whole thing. We can go in there really quickly. We can A-B test, you know, preference test, two different options of copy or message. And again, you know, it turns anecdotes into data because you can do that multiple times. Yeah, no, Winter's a great, uh, great tool. And for the audience, Winter basically allows you to uh, create a panel of your target ICP and then show them a content experience, copywriting, and then get their uh, gauge on it. And I remember uh, doing this the expensive way years ago when it's like, all right, we've got messaging we're going to test. Let's go spend 20 grand on AdWords and see what sticks. And that's just really expensive. So now with Winter, it's much cheaper to do, much more cost effective. And you're right, the other panel companies like Ask Your Target Market AYTM, when you try to get them to do something in this space, it's extremely expensive. Like they specialize in consumers. So I would agree with you. It's a great solution. It sounds like, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong here, you have a big affinity towards kind of the qualitative that can be turned into quantitative, right? So as an example, Winter, in my opinion, is a tool that makes the typical qualitative thing more quantitative. Same with Gong.io. It takes a qualitative opinion and makes that quantitative. But it sounds like you really like those two things. Um, is there other tools that you have in your stack that are helping you you kind of turn that typical qualitative experience into something that's quantitative? Yeah, so, you know, another one that plays, uh, or another approach that plays with those two is that when it comes to attribution, there's this whole, you know, talk track about dark social, right? And how attribution doesn't capture what's actually going on. And so I'm not going to preach to you about dark social, but one of the first things I did was make sure, you know, that we were thinking whether we should be asking our own customers and prospects where they heard about us. So we put that self-attributed you know, field in our demo forms, our account sign-up forms. And so that now gets piped into a Slack channel where every single day, 20, 30 bits of data would come into that about where they've heard about us. And then someone in our demand gen team, Paola, then pulls that together, creates a pie chart, and now you've turned qual data into quant data. And it's way more interesting and insightful than what we were getting before, which was that, yeah, loads of people go direct to our website and then maybe sign up for a demo. Whereas now we know they came from a podcast or a video or they met our founder at a CEO event or they met me at a marketing event. And so, yeah, I love the richness of that. Good qualitative data is so valuable for your business. It's exciting to hear Andrew talk about how he prioritizes this qualitative data and he gets it in front of his team right in Slack. Some of the best data you have is from open text fields. Unfortunately, that kind of data is really hard to parse and convert into quantitative format. In order to read qualitative data effectively, you'll want to transform it into a quantitative report whenever possible. You just can't run with one insight because the customer types it. You need to find the trends and make sure that you have some sort of statistical significance before you start doing all the dirty work. Luckily, there's some tools for that. Shameless plug here, since we love qualitative data so much here at Magal.io, we built a free phrase parsing tool for you to use. The parsing tool sorts through your open field text data and will show you the top one to five word phrases that your customers used. 
Just imagine you ask a survey to a thousand people and you get 500 open text responses and you want to see if there's any patterns in the phrases that they used. All you have to do is copy and paste that data you want organized and hit go. Now you'll have all the four word phrases people used and you can clearly see that people said bug at login and be able to turn this qualitative data a little bit into the quantified side. When it comes to data, something I notice far too often is that people get way too data driven when they need to just be data informed. In marketing, data is a huge part of our strategy, which is why we spend so much time parsing through it and turning it into something valuable. But once you get to that point, you can't just rely on the data alone. Your decisions need to be informed by that data, but don't neglect the human side. Your business intuition and your gut still need to be a part of your decisions. All right, now let's get back to Andrew and hear more about his stack. So you were talking about the stack. You know, I'm super interested. You talked about Gong. You have outreach and stuff like that. So it sounds like there's an outbound sales motion, but that's probably not on your court, right? That's in the sales organization, but it still sounds like you're listening to Gong. But are you involved with what's going on in outreach or is that mainly a sales thing? So all of our BDRs sit on outreach and um, BDRs roll up to the DG org that I serve. So yeah, that, that all sits under marketing as well in terms of the outreach usage. Now, BDRs report to marketing. Has it always been that way there or is this new? Actually, it changed when I came on board, but it wasn't something I asked for. I've managed BDRs before. I think there's swings and roundabouts there. There's no perfect way of doing this, and it just depends on the stage of org, and it depends on the time capacity of the person who's leading that as well and where they bias. So, you know, there's some obvious benefits of having it in sales in terms of the career path of those people and how aligned they are into the into the sales organization. One of the things I love about having it in marketing is it makes the whole marketing focus, uh, the whole marketing team more revenue focused if you give a voice to those BDRs. BDRs or SDRs, whatever you whatever you want to call them in your function, they have the ear of our audience because they're being told no or yes or maybe or why on a daily basis. And if they're sitting over in sales, it's too easy for a marketing team to go soft and that to be across the fence in someone else's department. And also it's too easy for market, marketing to focus on the things that it can immediately move rather than thinking about the things that actually drive opportunities and drive meeting creation. So I love having it as part of the marketing mix for those two reasons. Oh, I think that's an amazing reason as well. I, I definitely agree with you. Like at times you have like, what's the career path? Because now they have to change departments in essence to become an AE and that's the natural progression. But I do agree, you know, I wish we had a uh, Casey Armstrong on the show and their entire organization between sales and marketing is aligned around the same metrics. So it makes it easy for them to stay aligned. They don't have as many issues. There's no like throwing shade at each other, like your leads suck or we deliver you great leads, whatever. So I, I love your perspective at it. So going back to Drift, you talked about you have Drift on the marketing site. How's that working out for you? I mean, there's this big backlash in regards to like, can we get the damn forms back? Because it takes me six minutes to fill out your stupid chat bot. takes me one minute to fill out the form. What's your opinion here? I mean, I've been seeing this all over the internets recently. I find it super interesting as a, as a user, um, as an end user. Um, in fact, there's a business I'm, I'm invested in that is in the chat, chat bot space. And thinking about what the conversation is and the ratio of information you're giving versus getting can help you decide what kind of form factor you want that communication to take. So yeah, I, I've certainly been in the camp of getting super frustrated when a bot's doing the fake, you know, two second wait to get back to me every time I type, even though I know it's a, not a real person. Yeah, we use Drift reasonably sparingly. We're just kind of every every week or every couple of weeks, we're trying some new things there. Um, the team are, are working closely with a Drift uh, advisory team, support team on that. And yeah, I mean, every week we'll see opportunities and meetings that are created out of those Drift conversations. So 
there's some things there that are really working for us. And again, you know, it's it's not about just those sequence messages. It's also about our BDRs jumping in and being part of that so they get assigned to their accounts when they're on our website. Yeah. And then I'm going to assume that like Drift is dumping its data in HubSpot, then dumping it into Salesforce. Uh, and then of course, like the ma- team is managing a lot of their life out of Salesforce. Is Salesforce the main reporting hub or is there another place where you're getting most of your reporting? So a lot of that reporting, yes, is native in Salesforce. Um, we're also just moving now to, uh, well, we're moving away from Periscope and towards Tableau um, for a bunch of, of our wider BI. So, you know, behind the scenes here, the RevOps team have got a pretty interesting modern data stack. So you've got, you know, Fivetran that is, you know, stuff that doesn't change often, like CRM data, is then uploaded straight into Snowflake. Snowflake, that'll be the, the, the ETL up into Snowflake. And then you've got Rudder stack on the CDP side. There's the tracked events with a timestamp, page views, form submissions, product signups, etc. So that's the event slinging tool. So the capture and rich, the send to the warehouse. And then, you know, we've got DBT, which is that kind of bunch of, of SQL files that's doing version control and a bit of our own data modeling, calculating contact associations to accounts and unifying data sources. And it does the heavy lifting around cleanliness. And then we've got Census as a reverse ETL, bringing all of that data back into those core marketing and sales systems. Look at this guy. And I mean, well, one, you have a very impressive data stack. And the fact that the CMO knows the full data stack is even uh, just as impressive. So this is great. I am curious to know, like, what are the biggest challenges that you're experiencing right now in the stack in general? Like, are there things that you are struggling with or things that you know you're going to end up struggling with? I mean, one of the reasons we've got that stack that's pretty fresh and well thought through is that we became too reliant on Hull. And as that sunsets, we're having to rebuild a bunch of this. And so that's less about Hull, it's more about becoming too centralized, you know, our, our risk being too centralized on a single product, too many eggs in one basket. And so we're trying to be a bit more modular as we go forwards and hedge that risk a bit. So that'd be one kind of challenge and learning. I think another one, we, we launched a new version of Salesforce or the team launched a new version of Salesforce back in the summer. And I think one of our learnings from that was that there was just not enough commercial stakeholder input and communication. And so what was launched certainly wasn't fit for what marketing and sales leadership needed at that point of time. And we had to do a bunch of fixes as soon as it was live to get it ready. And I've seen that before, you know, at, at EpiServer then Optimizely, we went through two consecutive summers where we were unifying a Salesforce marketing automation and web stack three ways into one. So three to one, one summer, then the next one, three to one. And so with all of that, there's the stakeholder management piece here is super tough. So there's one thing there about making sure that, that stakeholders in the, in the sales and marketing and success team really understand what's going on and are really well communicated with. And then the flip side learning that I think we've had challenges over that we're really working hard and I'm working hard with my team to, to change is if you've got a central RevOps function, the amount of feedback, the volume of requests and requirements is, is monumental that comes into that central team. And if it all comes in totally disaggregated and not structured into themes and tickets, it's really hard for RevOps to know what's priority and what's not, because everything's urgent by tomorrow, right? And so we need to get way better, we being the, the business function, way better at structuring our feedback and our requirements and having more technical people on our side to be able to give better requirements into RevOps to solve. I love your ownership and accountability there too. Like the fact that you're saying we need more technical people on our side so we can be better by them. I think that's amazing. Most people are like the exact opposite of that. Like they need to be better at reading me. So I I love you. You're awesome. You have a wealth of experience and you've done some pretty amazing things and you're still, I mean, you're working at a very impressive company. I mean, if there was three recommendations that you would give to other marketers for how they can build the stack, right? What would be the advice you'd give them? 
So, you know, that kind of not centralizing on one single tool without full confidence, I think is definitely one. So making sure you're building modular and you've got got a, a kind of a sustainable plan there, I think that's definitely something. I think one thing that's dear to my heart is to either be the expert or hire and trust the expert. And when it comes to this stack, I know enough to be dangerous, um, but I'm definitely not the expert. And therefore, in every role I've had, I've always made sure there's someone there that I hire in or, or train up from inside the team, and then I trust them. And so I think that's, that's that becomes really difficult if you if you either hire someone and don't trust them, or you try and be the expert alongside your day job, and it ends up becoming you know pretty divisive in terms of your your, your time focus. So those would be two. I think a third one is is important to me is that. This, this idea of experimentation. I think that within, within any business, unless you codify that as an experiment's backlog, you end up being haphazard over what your core strategy is and what are all the new great ideas that come in. So something that we did at Optimizely and we're building here at Paddle is a willingness to experiment, but also a process around that. How do we queue up ideas into experiments that we can then bring to the table? I can remember when we um, launched the new Optimizely.com, one of the things that myself and the, the lady who ran web at Optimizely, we went into that kind of exec meeting to get kind of exec level approval for what we were doing. And um, instead of asking for feedback, we said, we don't want your feedback. What we do want is your ideas for experiments that will sit on our backlog and we will go and try them for you. And uh, having that approach of being really willing to have ideas on new stack, on new data, on new campaigns, on new messaging, but be putting them into an experiments backlog you work through and have a rigorous process around is something that I'm really looking forward to build here at Paddle. And so ha having the ability and the resource to do stuff on side of the business as usual would be kind of a, a, another recommendation I'd have. Trying to build that into your culture is definitely like one of the most important things. Making it okay to make mistakes, I think that's where an experimentation culture starts is it's okay to have a failure, right? And we do conversion rate optimization for a considerable number of our clients and our failure rate is 72%. And that is not a bad thing because we are swinging 28% of the time, we're hitting good conversion increases. So it, it can be hard to build an experimentation team when you don't allow them to make mistakes. So I think you're on the right path. I guess, how do you make it easier? Is it your demeanor? Is it uh, the way that you have your company values that make that experimentation and mistakes easy? One of my goals is to always be the dumbest person in the room. And that's certainly how I approach most rooms, including my marketing team. We've got a fantastic team here at Paddle. And so making sure that I'm positing myself in that situation allows people to come up with ideas and I really do welcome them and not being defensive when my ideas are shut down. And so yeah, I think a lot of it is around culture and values. And some of that stuff just can't, you know, you can document it, but it's not enough to just document it. You've got to live it. So yeah, I, I hope the team here would feel uh, that their views are, are valid and their views are valued. So that's, that's definitely part of the process. Then also, it's how you deal with failure. I think when you have a failure, how you model that is super important. How, how you create an experience for people where failure is not a bad thing and it's something you learn from. So if we take that example with, with the tax letter, that was super painful, particularly for um, the lady on our team who had who had steered that process, that ABM campaign, because I think someone on Twitter called for her to be fired as a result of that because they, they felt that this was affecting this person's mental health who'd received this letter. 
And so it was really important. Firstly, Christian, our CEO on Twitter was very clear, you know, sorry guys, didn't mean for this to happen. We're not going to do any more of it. These are the reasons. And then internally with the marketing function, I was really clear with everybody that, you know, number one, no one's died, <laughs> you know, number two, we're going to listen to our customer feedback and learn from it. And number three, everyone get around, and I won't say her name, but everyone get around um, this lady and, and make sure she knows that regardless of what the feedback is, she stepped out here and she's done something. And it's not a crime. She's done a great, great job of trying something and we'll learn from it and make sure she doesn't feel that there's any sense of shame around this failed experiment. Um, so I do think how you react to it when it goes wrong is really, really key. And good by you for making sure that you did all the right things there. This has been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate you taking the time to spend it with us. I know our listeners as well are really appreciative. So thanks so much for being here, man. This has been a lot of fun. Cheers. Thanks, Dan. Andrew is such a smart guy. I was especially excited to hear about the documentary he and his team are working on. Getting creative is something I'd always encourage. It's a fun experience for both the consumer and as well as your team. Sometimes the best marketing is when you take risks and think outside of the box. Another really cool takeaway was not overlooking your qualitative data. Andrew talked about how this data was super, super valuable to him. There are also plenty of cool tools out there that will help you convert this qualitative data into quantitative data, like the free tool that we have here at magal.io, or you can also go to products like MonkeyLearn or other products of the like. The last thing I wanted to highlight before signing off was the RevOps structure Andrew spoke about. Instead of having a marketing ops person and a sales ops person, Paddle has a RevOps person in the middle. This works really well for them as marketing ops would of course be in marketing and sales ops of course would be in sales. This would then create further siloing and prevent them from having complete alignment. Now this is a really good idea, um, but I'm not sure how this will scale for them. So we'll see ultimately how that all pans out. That's everything we have for today, but we've got lots more conversations with great insight coming. Join me each week on The Stack. And because you're interested in this podcast, the next step would get a free copy of my book, Build Cool Shit, by going to buildcoolshit.com. Hold up. 